morning, Curve listeners. So excited to be back with you. As you might be able to hear, I'm coming to you from like a bunker. Happy to be here. I'm on the road today um, in an, an undisclosed location, but a little bit nice to be out of Newton, Massachusetts, especially when it looks like in so many parts of the country, my friend, things are not heading in the right way in terms of cases. So maybe we get a little bit of travel in now. Hopefully, hopefully we turn this thing around in the right direction. How are you holding up? Well, I'm doing well. I mean, as you know, I recently uh, made a couple of trips uh, on the plane, of course, wore my mask there. But uh, in the places where I visited, there was no mask mandate. And in the yeah. last seven days, we're starting to see that change. So on one hand, I'm glad to see uh, government and private sector officials uh, do what they believe is in the best interest of the public health of both people who shop at their stores and who work for them. But it's like a mid-stop. Just when we thought we were moving back into what we could call somewhat uh, normal life, we're back to this again. But you know what? This may be our new normal for the next year or so. And it's going to have an impact on schools, uh, as we well know. So at our school, which is a private school, um, the leadership already had a plan in place just in case this happened. And I'm expecting our public school colleagues here in Charlottesville, Virginia, will do the same. But um, hope you're being safe on the road in your undisclosed bunker. Uh, in, in, in well, is by definition very safe right yes. <laughs> double masking on the plane and all that good stuff mainly because you know i've got kids at home who are not eligible to be vaccinated yet so one of the things that schools as you pointed out are, are thinking about now gerard so i opened with some sort of like depressing stuff but i had somebody asked me a question today that i found really fascinating so i want to ask it of you i'm okay. so curious as to your answer if you could compete in one olympic event which one would it be the hundred yard dash. Really? Yeah. Okay. I would come why. in last place. <laughs> Were you like a sprinter in college or something? No, 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 not at all. Even in high school, no, I was a fat kid who played offensive line, but I'm always amazed by the sheer grace and movement of people who are running that fast, who are built very differently yeah. than me. Uh, my wife cheers them on when they're running because she was hoping at some point in life I'd have a an epiphany and, and work out like they do. But um, I just find it to be a, um, a very intense 100 yards and I love to watch it. And it's always great to see when an underdog will upset someone, but that would be my sport. Yeah. What about you? So exciting. You know, so I had to think about this quite a bit. So I was a gymnast in high school. Uh, you know, I competed not very successfully most of the time, but um, my favorite event was the vault. And mm. so, you know, and so all of this stuff around Simone Biles and all that mm -hmm. she's had to deal with being in the spotlight and this pressure on her vault, you know, um, that's the event that I look at most. And I think like, wow. But now as a um, middle-aged human being, I look, I look at what these young women and men, but mainly I'm watching the young women are doing and think to myself, how did I ever even attempt to do half of what they were doing? Like, I can't like <laughs> the, the, the idea of like turning upside down and going backwards on a tiny little, you know, it, it just makes no sense to me anymore. So luckily none of my children have headed in that direction. I don't know how my parents endured it. Uh, the, the anxiety, like I get anxious just when my daughter's playing goalie in her community. <laughs> like I can't, I couldn't take it if I were mother to a gymnast. So all, all good stuff. Gerard, we've got, um, we've got Michael Bendis on today. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of our listeners are going to know him and he's going to be talking to us about a case that he's overseeing that is sort of the, the counterpart to Espinoza, which we talked about forever and ever on this show until we got our way. But, but a couple of things in the news, 
we, you know, listeners, we have so many different stories that we can choose from every week. And I had to choose this one um, from Education Week uh, called Why School Boards Are Now Hotspots for Nasty Politics. And I have to say, the reason that this one sang to me, just the title before I even read it, was like, I, as you know, Gerard, I have just rolled off after a decade of serving on a charter school board here in Massachusetts. And it was a wonderful experience. It was at sometimes a very trying experience. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I can say about this experience is that toward the end, it did get really difficult. I am not going to use the word nasty because I think that the folks in our community were um, were just really amazing and endured a lot of tough stuff. But but it was really difficult. And I think that, you know, local governance and local governance of schools is often seen as something that's just sort of like, I don't know, you show up, you, you tick some boxes, sometimes you make controversial decisions, but it is not, it is certainly not like that anymore. And I got to say, a part of me thinks it shouldn't be <laughs> like, I don't think that school board meetings should be like quiet, complacent places. Um, now, some of the parent engagement that we've got or community engagement that we've got going on at some school board meetings that have late is, is maybe a little bit over the top. But but this is really interesting to me because this is our chosen mode of local governance and education in the U.S. And it's a really important one. This Ed Week article, Gerard, of course, what it's really talking about is the fact that national politics have come to play such a role in this moment in the local decisions that schools make. So to the conversation we were just having at the outset, will they, will they say we need masks for unvaccinated children? Will they say we need masks for all children? Will they say it's going to be up to the parents to decide? All of these sort of national tensions around, mm-hmm. you know, our rights to do what we want to do and live how we want to live, or can the government tell us, are all playing out at the school board level. And of course, the stakes are really high and they feel really high, probably no matter what side of the issue you fall on. Um, the other point that this article makes that I think is actually just to the point, we've seen this playing out in Boston lately, is a rapidly shifting general media landscape, right? So, and I'm going to take this a little bit of a step further and talk about like open meeting law, right? For example, in mm-hmm. Massachusetts, we had very strict open meeting law about in-person meeting. And I mean, it would make your head explode. We had to have one person tracking it all the time to make sure we we're compliant. But now you can have, you know, because of COVID, we've opened up, we've relaxed many laws and there's all sorts of virtual interaction. I was on, I was chairing a board meeting that got Zoom bombed a year ago. It was a horrible experience. But there's, <laughs> there's also these, you know, these moments of you know, board members in Boston, two board members we lost to the Boston School Committee because they were texting during a meeting saying some nasty things about parents. And those messages are public. When you are a, a public official in a public setting, you know, the, your text messages are, are public. So uh, this is just, it's a really fascinating article. I think it does a good job of speaking to both sort of the, the challenges and the advantages of this changing landscape that we're in when it comes to school boards and how they're run. But I'm glad somebody is shining a spotlight on it because, you know, school boards can be highly effective or they can be totally asleep at the wheel. And then the whole model depends on accountability and the community saying like, Hey, board members, here's my opinion. And this is what I want you to do. So as long as we can keep it civil, which is a different conversation, mm-hmm. um, I'm our more active engagement at the school board level and the community level. But I, I thought this was a really interesting piece. Well, you know, school boards for many politicians has been a springboard. Um, It has been a way to say, hello, I want to get involved in local government. And education is one of the most uh, powerful 
ways to get involved with local government because you're dealing with the mayor, you're dealing with city council persons, you're dealing with business people. And then some people use that to go on to city council and then to mayor. I think, for example, of now U.S. Senator Cory Booker, uh, who at one point from New Jersey, uh, who at one point was one of my board members at the Black Alliance for Educational Options. And he got his start as a school board member and moved up the ranks. And even if you go back to Washington, D.C., late 60s, early 70s, Mayor Marion Barry, uh, who people know as the mayor to really help create a black middle class, started his career uh, on school board. So there's a lot that I like about school boards. I also understand that at times things can be pretty uh, cantankerous, uh, particularly if you are elected as a ward board member versus an at large. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot going on. I think people have become much more engaged in local board actions, as you mentioned, because of COVID. And the fact that, and let's be really clear, in some cities and counties and rural areas, school boards have always been shown live or recorded and put on PBS. But now people are watching them for a lot of reasons. So I'm glad to see civic engagement. I don't want them to turn into what I'm seeing on some planes where there have been at least 3,000 incidents with um, um, stewardesses and stewards. But no, you're you're right. It's uh, an active time to be involved. And I expect it will only become more active if, as, uh, as time goes on. Yeah. You know, real quick, because you mentioned planes, I'm going to I'm going to use our listening audience to make a real another real plea for civility here, because I saw some really unfortunate behavior on a plane today. And I, mm. I felt like, you know, come on, people. <laughs> Be kind. You know, it's an it's a, a, a older person was taking a very long time to get in their seat. And boy, the complaints and the heckling from the back. I thought this is so be kind, Gerard. I know you're always kind. <laughs> so. I am always kind until you say things about me on the side that I find out about later. <laughs> and then, we, then we address it offline. But other than we, that, we can yeah, talk about that offline. Absolutely. <laughs> well, what do you think about Well, speaking of school boards, this is an education issue that I'm going to uh, discuss, but it's one that's really more for higher ed, but in fact, people at the local level um, often have to weigh in. So, Kara, my story has something to do with education and something with the school board, but primarily at a higher level, and here's why. So, my article is written by Andrea Cantora. She is an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Baltimore, and she is one of my go-to academics when I have questions about correctional education and prisoner reentry. And so her article in the conversation title is, Expansion of Second Chance Pell Grants Will Let More People in Prison Pursue Degrees. And she opens up by reminding us that in 2016, uh, President Obama launched the Second Chance Pell Program. And it's worth noting that President Obama is the only sitting president to ever have visited a prison while in the White House. Well, it was during that, during his experience there and his work on criminal justice that he basically said, listen, if we're going to try to reduce recidivism, Uh, And given the fact that we're going to have 95 percent of the people are going to leave our prisons one day and yet 75 percent seem to return in five years, that's a big problem. So he created um, an experiment where he was going to basically offer Pell Grants to people who are incarcerated. Well, in 2016, we still had the federal ban. Uh, that was in place, which basically said that if you're incarcerated, even if in the free world you would have qualified for a Pell Grant because of your income, if you're in prison, guess what? You've lost lost the right to have 
and access to a Pell Grant. So that experiment uh, is still in place, but in December of 2020, Congress lifted the federal ban and is now working on regulations, rules, and other things to move forward so that we can actually open the program up by July 2023. Well, what she noted is that the U.S. Department of Education recently said that they're going to open up the application for more universities and colleges across the country to apply to become a second chance Pell School. Right now, there are about 130 sites in 42 states and in D.C. I've had a chance to visit some of those sites and actually work with some of the people who are there. So why does Andrea say we should look seriously uh, at this issue? Number one, participation in an education program results in less crime. She identified a 2013 RAND study, which found that people who participate in prison education were 43% less likely to reoffend. She also said there's opportunities for better employment. People who participate in education programs are 13% more likely to get jobs uh, than those who do not participate. And she also talked about anticipated actions. You know, colleges right now, even before COVID, more so now, uh, are looking to bring in students uh, into their their schools uh, online or even in person. So here's an opportunity to bring in adults who either started an associate's program a bachelor's degree, and some actually uh, were awarded certificates. So it's a good story that I like. As you know, I'm a big supporter of this, but it's good to see Andrea, someone who not only writes about this, uh, but who helped bring the University of Baltimore into a prison in Maryland. She knows this firsthand. So for universities and colleges, and for our listeners, uh, if your alumni or if you're alumni of a school or a college that you think could be a great partner for the Second Chance Pell program, tell them to go to the U.S. Department of Education's website and take a look or go to uh, the Vera Institute, who is responsible for providing technical support to those in the program and take a look there and see what we can do. So what do you think? I'm so glad that you chose this story this week, Dora, because I have to say I wish that this were a much bigger part of the general conversation we have about education, about higher education. Um, it was several years ago where you invited myself and, and Jamie Gass of Pioneer mm-hmm. Institute to attend um, to attend a conference that you had put on um, in D.C. And at that conference, I learned so much from listening to folks, formerly incarcerated individuals who had earned degrees and um, and and just the. Um, how important it is, how how important these programs can be to, I mean, the title says it all, right, to giving folks um, a second chance. It was a real learning for me personally, and I hope that you keep talking about this because you are certainly um, expert and very thoughtful about the issue, and it's one that I think we need to have much larger national conversation about, but we certainly have a platform so we can do it, right? Thank you. Well, listen, okay, as I said, coming up after this, we are speaking with Michael Bindis, Hopefully, listeners, we will ask him all the questions that you want us to ask about this upcoming upcoming case and also just about um, about his good work at the Institute for Justice. So we'll be back right after this. Listeners, we have with us today Michael Bendis. He is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice. You know it as IJ, and he leads their educational choice team. He was part of IJ's litigation team in Espinosa v. Montana Department of Revenue, in which the U.S. Supreme Court held the exclusion of religious options from Montana's educational choice program unconstitutional. We have talked about that decision a lot on this show. 
Michael is currently IJ's lead attorney in Carson v. Macon, challenging Maine's exclusion of religious options from its own tuitioning program. I can't wait for folks to understand exactly what's going on in Maine because it's a big deal. Prior to joining IJ in 2005, Michael spent three years as an attorney with Perkins Coy. He is a former law clerk to Judge Rasa Hawkins Barksdale of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and served as an engineer officer in the United States Army and Pennsylvania Army National Guard before beginning his legal career. He received his undergraduate degree from the United States Military Academy and his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Michael, I just learned so many new things about you, all of them very impressive. Thanks for being with us today on The Learning Curve. Thanks, Kara. There's nothing impressive about me, but thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, well, we can argue about that later. So, okay. So we have, as I interrupted your bio to say, Gerard and I have talked of course, in the lead up to Espinoza and then after Espinoza in the joy that was Espinoza and then trying to figure out like how we're actually going to gain traction from Espinoza. We've talked about it a lot, but that's the decision as a reminder that significantly undermined state Blaine amendments in many of the nearly 40 states that, that have had them on the books. So why don't we, before we get into the case that you're working on now, could you talk a little bit about that Espinoza decision, but with a specific like look at what, what it's meant for your work at IJ and what you think it could mean for the future of educational choice and re- religious liberty in the country? Sure. So, you know, the Espinoza case concerned a school choice program that the Montana legislature adopted back in 2015. And as originally adopted, it was open to all schools, religious or non-religious. But shortly after the program was adopted, the Montana Department of Revenue, which was the agency in charge of administering the program, adopted a regulation that excluded religious schools from the program, flatly prohibited parents from choosing religious schools. And they claimed that this regulation was warranted by the state's Blaine Amendment. Um, as I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar, uh, these are provisions found in uh, many, many state constitutions, typically dating to the late 19th century. And they have origins that are steeped in anti-Catholic bigotry uh, that was pervasive at that time. Um, But nevertheless, the Department of Revenue claimed that this provision, this bigoted provision in the Montana Constitution required the exclusion of religious schools. So we challenged that exclusion on behalf of three families, three moms in Montana who were eligible for the program and wanted to use it to send their children to religious schools. And we argued that to apply the state's Blaine Amendment to exclude religious options violated the federal constitution and the free exercise rights of of these three families. We won at the trial court, but then we lost at the Montana Supreme Court, which held that, number one, the Blaine Amendment did require this exclusion of religious options, and that applying the Blaine Amendment that way to bar families from choosing religious schools was perfectly permissible under the U.S. Constitution and the Free Exercise Clause. So we appealed that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. Thankfully, the court agreed to hear it. And in June of last year, June of 2020, the court issues this landmark decision in Espinoza, and it holds that to apply a state Blaine Amendment to exclude religious options from a program like Montana's violates the federal constitution. Um, in, In the court's words, a state need not subsidize private education, but once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. 
this was a huge victory uh, for years. We've been hearing from school choice opponents, uh, you know, in, in, in state legislatures throughout the country. They've been telling legislators, you cannot adopt a school choice program in this state because we have a Blaine Amendment. And Blaine Amendments prohibit religious options, uh, and therefore you can't do it in this state. And when they've been unsuccessful there and the state legislature goes ahead and adopts a program anyway, these same school choice opponents have run to courthouses challenging the programs under state Blaine amendments, trying to take away the options that these programs provide for families who desperately need them. In Espinoza, the court largely took that argument off the table from the school choice opponents and said, no, a state cannot or school choice opponents cannot use Blaine amendments as a weapon to take choice away from families to single out and exclude religious options from these types of programs. So it was a tremendous victory that really took one of the main arguments of school choice opponents off the table, which in turn paved the way for greater uh, uh, parental choice uh, in the coming years. Okay, huge victory. And if we all remember, well, I don't know, it, it seems like this is never ending, but um, it happened when, when most people truly were uh, locked down, right? This was still sort of at the beginning of this COVID thing. We've been dealing with the, the Espinosa decision was in the summer, um, uh, about, about a year ago, I suppose. But what we saw this past year, you know, I think it's probably hard to disentangle the effects of COVID causing parents to just so vociferously demand more and different and better options and legislators finally sort of listening in some places. But whether it's post-Espinosa or COVID or both, boy, oh boy, did we see movement, especially in the private education choice arena in this country in the past year. So we have doubled the number of education savings accounts in this country. We have new tax credit funded education savings accounts. We have um, new tax credit scholarships. Give us your read on, like, is this year just going to be an exceptional one? Is this a new trajectory for us? And I'm really curious as to what you're thinking about um, any legal challenges. I'm, I'm sure that we've already know of a few, but, but what do you see in terms of legal challenges to some of these new programs? Sure. I, I agree you're spot on with your kind of assessment. I think it, uh, this was no question the the banner, the, you know, the, the greatest year for, for educational choice legislatively on record. And I attribute that to, to the two things that you mentioned, Kara. Number one, Espinoza and its removal of some of the kind of legal uncertainty over school choice, coupled with the just parental frustration with the way the, the public school establishment handled uh, the past 18 months. And that frustration uh, prompted legislators uh, to, in many, many states, to introduce legislation to adopt new programs or to expand existing programs. And all told, I think we're up to 18 states now uh, this year, this, this, this legislative session, that have adopted new programs or expanded existing ones. Um, that is by far the largest number on record. And we're now, I think, up to 69 programs uh, nationally in, in 33 states, plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Um, and we're well, well over a million families now participating in these programs. So, so no question, this was uh, a, an exceptional year. That success, however, means that lawsuits will follow. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, the opponents of school choice are a dogged bunch, and there's no question that uh, as these new programs are being implemented, there will be challenges. And in fact, we've already seen one in Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky passed a tax credit uh, funded ESA program earlier this year. 
And that program has already been challenged and, and we've intervened in the case to defend it. And I certainly expect that most, if not all of the other new programs that were adopted this year will also be challenged, um, but we'll be there to defend them. And we're very confident that they'll be upheld. And I think as, as, more and more parents get a taste for options outside the public school monopoly, there's only going to be just greater demand for, for, for greater choice. And I think the future looks very, very bright uh, for educational choice. Uh, will we see the same numbers being adopted in future years? Um, I, I hope so. And, and I don't see why we, we can't. Um, but even if we're not quite at the numbers we saw this uh, this legislative session, I think you're only going to see momentum continue to grow as more and more parents get a taste for what else is out there. That's right. And, and I know that these states are many of them working so thoughtfully toward really sound implementation so that so that when parents do have a taste, it's, it's the right one. Okay, so but now to the big thing, because we Espinosa, as you said, it, it took off the table most plain amendments, but there it, it left open um, some room for further litigation. And you are on that right now. So you have just been I'm going to try and use the, the lingo that the kids use. You've just been granted cert. <laughs> Right. <laughs> By the US that's what all the kids are talking about. Yeah. What all the kids are talking about. Um, and, and this is about the main school tuition case, Carson v. Macon. And actually, Jamie Gass and I, Pioneer Institute, were um, were at the circuit court in Boston the last time this was argued. Um, but so you're lead counsel. And could you give us that that layperson's overview of the case? Like, how is it different from Espinoza? Why could this really matter and and how do you hope that the court rules? And if they do, what does it mean? Sure, sure. So so Carson concerns Maine's tuition assistance program uh, for kids who live in towns that don't operate a public high school. Uh, so if if a school district does not operate its, its own public school, it has to do one of two things. It can either contract with a school to educate the resident school, uh, this, uh, the resident students of that district, or it can, if it doesn't do that, it has to provide tuition that would have been used to educate that child and allow the parents uh, of the child to use that money at the public or private school of their choice. Um, so they can they can pick public or private. It can be inside or outside of Maine. Um, in fact, it can be outside the country. Um, but the one thing it can't be is any school that the state deems to be sectarian, which the state defines uh, as any school that offers religious instruction. So a student can attend the most elite prep schools, uh, you know, Avon Old Farms, Miss Porter's, the Taft School, um, these kind of, you know, incredibly prestigious, uh, incredibly competitive prep schools in New England, but they can't attend a Jewish day school or the school attached to their local Catholic parish. That may seem unconstitutional, particularly in light of Espinoza. We certainly think it is. But the First Circuit Court of Appeals did not think it was. Um, in October uh, of 2020, four months after Espinoza, the First Circuit upheld Maine's sectarian exclusion. And it used some really twisted reasoning to get there. Um, essentially, what it said is, sure, Espinoza prohibits the state from excluding schools because they are religious, that is, because of their religious status. But we don't think that's what Maine is doing. Maine's not excluding schools because they are religious. Maine is excluding schools because they do religious stuff, like teach religion. 
And that somehow in the First Circuit's uh, view was a constitutionally meaningful distinction. Um, Again, fully recognizing a state can exclude schools because they are religious, but that states can exclude schools if they do religious stuff. The the First Circuit thought that was a perfectly logical um, distinction, and and therefore it upheld Maine's exclusion on that ground. The fact that uh, it didn't exclude schools because they have a religious status, but because they would put a student's uh, tuition benefit to a religious use. And, and, and the First Circuit thought that that was perfectly permissible under the U.S. Constitution. So uh, obviously we disagree and we petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for review. And in July of this year, the court accepted the case, uh, granted cert in the, in, the, in the kids' lingo, and uh, announced that uh, it would hear our case in the upcoming term. And the court, should it decide the case correctly, has the chance now to kind of finally put the religion issue to rest once and for all. Espinoza should have done that. Um, but again, school choice opponents are a dogged bunch, and, and they thought in, in Carson that they'd found a way around Espinoza. Um, we're confident that the Supreme Court's not going to let them get away with that, not going to let the First Circuit navigate around uh, Espinoza, and that the court will make clear that you can't exclude a school because it is religious, but you can't exclude a school simply because it engages in religious activity either. And if the court you know, holds as much, finally, this, this question, this uncertainty about Uh, whether states can or cannot exclude schools based on religion, whether it's status or use, will finally be put to rest once and for all, which, again, will only further eliminate any of the legal uncertainty over school choice and give greater confidence to legislators across the country that they can adopt these programs and that they will be upheld and that they can provide the opportunity that so many families desperately need. Mike, I recently had a chance to visit Maine, and it's a beautiful place. And as you know, going back to 1873, um, if your parents uh, lived in a town that was too small to support a public school, that you could actually send your child to a public or private school. And that even included religious schools uh, before 1980. And so the case that you're talking about is just really important just across the board. You started to weigh in on some of this, but could you go in further as to, you know, why and how, you know, legal change occurred that actually blocked religious schools in Maine when at one time it was open to all of them? Yeah. Yeah. For over 100 years, you could you could use this program to attend a religious school if if you thought that was what was best uh, for your child. But in 1980, the Maine attorney general at the time issued an opinion that uh, that suggested that allowing religious schools uh, as a choice under this program violated the federal constitution. And that was wrong then, but it only became more wrong over time uh, because in 2002, in in another IJ case, a case called Zellman versus Simmons-Harris, the Supreme Court held that religious options in school choice programs are perfectly permissible under the U.S. Constitution. Um, So the very reasoning for this 1980 attorney general opinion, which in turn uh, prompted the legislature to exclude religious schools, um, the very reasoning for that was rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2002. Nevertheless, Maine continued this exclusion. It continued to prohibit parents from choosing religious schools. And essentially, its, its view is, sure, the federal constitution allows 
the inclusion of religious schools, but we as a state are still perfectly free to exclude them, and we're going to continue doing so. Uh, again, we think that that is blatantly unconstitutional religious discrimination, and the Supreme Court now has the opportunity to say that once and for all. So let's go to higher ed. I work at Marquette University in Milwaukee. If a student qualified for a Pell Grant wanted to go to Milwaukee uh, to Marquette, uh, he, or she could, he or she could use the Pell Grant. They wanted to go to the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee, they could do the same. Across America, students can actually use state and federal grants and loans at public and private schools, vocational schools, and even places like Marquette. Would you talk about why so many Americans still tend to believe that access to religiously affiliated primary and secondary schools, somehow it's different than when you get to the higher education world? Yeah, it, it, it's frustrating that there are some folks who see it as different because because you're right. Uh, there is no difference. Um, we have long provided choice at the higher ed uh, level through the Pell Grant program, the GI Bill, and school choice is no different. It's applying that same concept at the K through 12 level and allowing uh, the money to follow the child to uh, the the private school, whether religious or non-religious uh, school of their choice. Still, though many Americans are reluctant to, um, uh, to or hesitate to, to view choice at the K-12 level the same way that they do and accept at the higher ed level. And, and really, I think that reluctance, that, that hesitation comes from the fact that the public school teachers unions uh, are so vocal and so loud about uh, the supposed threat that K-12 school choice presents to public schools in the United States. Um, that, that line from the, from the teachers' unions is nonsense. Um, school choice is not a threat to the public school system, but the unions are very, very loud, and they're very, very influential, um, and they simply don't care that even the best public school is not going to be the best school for every child. Um, they believe that they have a monopoly over education. Uh, they're going to protect that monopoly. And their argument is that uh, choice is a threat to the public school system. And unfortunately, many Americans for a long time have bought that argument, have accepted that argument. That's changing, though. I think COVID, in, in light of COVID, a lot of Americans are starting to realize that there are other options out there, and they're starting to question the union's line uh, that they've you know, been feeding Americans for so long. And over the last year and a half, uh, the experience with COVID is now, again, causing a, a lot of folks to question what, they, what they've always heard about choice at the K through 12 level. Um, parents are now demanding options. They're getting them as more and more states are providing these programs. And I'm convinced that that, you know, in, in the future, more and more Americans are going to just continue to embrace choice um, just as they've always done at the higher uh, higher ed level. Uh, they will see that, you know, why can't we have the same thing at the K-12 level as well? You bring up a couple of good points that made me think of, you know, one fact. A lot of families in the K-12 sector who enroll their children in a religious school do for for reasons other than just religion. I'm thinking of some of the private schools in Georgia. I'm on the board of Gold Scholarship, and we're the largest tax credit uh, program in the, in the state. And we've interviewed parents, and some of them will surely send their child to a religious school because of the religion, uh, but some send their child to the school for the academics, 
for extracurricular activity, for the size of the school. So there are a number of reasons people do this. And I often think about lawyers like yourself when my friends tell me, well, the Constitution said we've got to separate church and state. We know it's not in there. We know that term was somewhat uh, you know, blown up from a conversation or I guess a letter that uh, Thomas Jefferson had written uh, in 1801. When you talk to lawyers uh, or soon to be lawyers who may be interested in getting involved in the school choice work, and it's a battle. And I can remember going back to the early 90s with Clint Bullock and IJ in the early years, we're working with parents in uh, South Central LA talking about choice. How do you encourage them to take on this line of work, given what either teacher unions are saying about choice, but also just some of the misconceptions about funding in U.S. schools? I tell them what I've experienced litigating these cases for the last 15 or 16 years, and that is the subject matter is fascinating, but you also have the ability to make a very real very tangible impact on the lives of people who desperately need help. I can't think of any other kind of line of work, certainly in the legal profession, where that is true, where, where, you know, as an attorney, you have the opportunity to work on something that's interesting, but also that can make literally the difference in whether a child has the ability to escape from a failing system into one where they've got a chance to succeed and thrive. And, and for me, that is without question the most enjoyable um, and rewarding aspect of this work. And, you know, something that you mentioned earlier is, is, is really interesting. And that is, you know, for many parents, you know, this is, this is about religion, right? For many parents, they believe that religious instruction is, is, is critical for their children. Um, and, and therefore they make choices based on that. But for many, many families, you know, religion may be a, a motivating factor, but they're concerned with just the safety of their children going to school, particularly in a lot of inner city areas, that is the number one concern. And so, yes, those families might choose a religious school, um, but they're doing so not because they're necessarily adherents to the particular denomination operating the school, but because it's just a better, safer environment for their children. You ask a hundred different families what they want in a school and what school will best meet their their kids' needs, they're going to give you a hundred different answers, but they're all equally valid answers because no two kids are the same. Children are unique. They have unique educational needs, and parents should be able to make choices uh, to best meet those needs. And if that's a religious school, great. If it's a religious school because you want the religious instruction, great. If it's a religious school because your child is going to be safe there, great. Why shouldn't we make that choice available uh, uh, to all parents? And and so I think that's what I would, would tell folks who are interested in this this type of work is that, again, I can't think of any area in the law where you have the ability to make that kind of impact for people who desperately, desperately want access to an educational environment where they will have the chance to succeed. Well, I had a chance to actually meet uh, some students from Cleveland uh, who benefited from the work that uh, IJ did in the Zellman case and mentioned I worked in Milwaukee, but also supporting the the uh, Milwaukee Promote Choice Program there. The work that you've done to help change the life trajectory of some low-income families who are now going to enter working class, middle-class status, but you've also in many ways broken the cycle of poverty. And we know that education is definitely one of the five levers used to do that. 
So, Michael, thank you for the great work you're doing. We're going to, of course, watch the Carson case uh, with great interest. Uh, look forward to having you back on at another point. And uh, as you said, this is good work. And for the lawyers who are involved in this work, keep it up. Thank you, Gerard Carey. I appreciate it. So, Gerard, as always, we end with the tweet of the week. And this one is from Gary Rosen at Gary Rosen at WSJ. Um, And he is referencing an article. Um, His tweet says, research shows that students do better when school has a transcendent religious or social purpose rather than just preparing for a career. This is a piece by the Twitter handle is at unorthodox mark. It's really a phenomenal um, piece. It's by Mark Oppenheimer, I should say. I picked this one this week, Gerard, because so interesting. Before we read, before I read this piece, my husband and I were having a conversation just this past weekend about why we love our kids' school so very much. And my husband, who is not in education at all, listeners, um, he said, you know, there's something transcendent about that school, about what our kids are learning. They're getting all they need in terms of the, the, you know, the three R's, but they're learning so much more. And um, so what this piece is really about, and I have to say, folks, it's framed as a little bit of a new idea, but it's not because I, I always have to reference him, but giving a shout out to my wonderful friend and mentor, the great Charlie Glenn. This was one of the first things he taught me as a graduate student was that schools work best when they are mission driven, when they have a real vision, a real ethos, and when everybody's on the same page about what that looks like. And Gerard, this is something you know, this is something that anybody who's ever worked in a school or been a school leader certainly knows, but it's something that we don't talk about um, a lot with parents. And so, but what, what Oppenheimer goes on to say in this article, he's talking about his own kids' experience, but he's talking about when, he's, when he uses the word transcendent, he's just talking about that one sort of like organizing fundamental principle on which a school as an organization is based. And for some folks, you know, that's choosing a a faith-based school, but people sort of automatically go there and it doesn't mean it has to be a faith-based school. Schools can be organized around so many different missions um, that really, you know, are are transcendental as the title of the article puts it. So, you know, it could be a school that's um, heavily oriented towards social justice. It could be, which is not at all controversial these days, right, George? It could be a school that is heavily oriented toward community service. It could even be a school that's, you know, focused on dance or the arts and, and how you how you thrive and survive in life through these things. But I just found this a really great reminder of, of one of the main purposes of education and of schooling. And um, unfortunately, I think that not all kids have the privilege of going to a school that is organized around such a mission. And I think it's really important to point out that schools that have this transcendental value are neither public nor private nor charter. They are all of the above. And sometimes schools in each category don't manage to successfully organize around a clear mission or vision. Um, Charters in private schools, oftentimes it's easier for them to do so. Public schools have more constraints placed on them that might make it difficult at times for school leaders and teachers to feel like they have the ability to clearly state values or an organizing principle, but that doesn't mean they can't do it. And many public schools do it very successfully. And so, yeah, I really loved this article and I highly recommend it to our readers, uh, many of whom I think will be highly engaged in it. All right. It is that time. We are done. You've spent another hour with Kara and Gerard. Thank you very much. 
Next week, we are going to be speaking with Christina Ariaga. She is president of Intrinsic, which is a strategic communications firm, and she is the former vice chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. So that should be a great follow-up to this week's guest um, and something to look forward to. Until then, Gerard, mask when appropriate, please stay safe. And um, looking forward to connecting with you next week when we, of course, will have more stories to share. Same to you and go who's UVA Olympians are doing very well. Absolutely. Congrats. All right. Till next week. Take care.